0: Welcome to Matitsi Stories, a podcast by the Matitsi Museums, exploring Matitsi area history through its people, places, and events. This season, we're exploring the story of the bison. It's a story that started roughly 200,000 years ago when the first bison stepped foot in North America. And so far, we've covered their body size and morphology and the ways they were hunted for thousands of years. We ended last episode with only 300 bison in the continental United States left. This limited population of bison at the end of the 19th century is known as a population bottlenecking. Bottlenecking occurs when there's an abrupt and severe reduction in the number of individuals of a species. It often results in the loss of genetic material from the gene pool, meaning there's less diversity. Today, we're not unfamiliar with bison, and they're certainly not extinct. So what happened to turn the tide? We'll turn to one of the Bighorn Basin's most famous residents. Colonel William F. Cody, also known as Buffalo Bill, earned his nickname hunting bison and claims to have killed 4,282 bison over an 18-month period. However, he established a hunting club at his ranch outside of Cody, Wyoming, and soon realized Something was going on in the landscape and he needed to change his ways. Cody led many hunting
1: expeditions out of his ranch. In fact, he started the Cody Club, a hunting club that would meet for two weeks every year with a prize going to the hunter with the best record for that two-week period. It was during this phase of Cody's life that he noticed the decline of big game species. He quickly realized that over hunting, in addition to the encroachment of man, was decimating these large species. This realization changed Buffalo Bill's attitude completely about hunting, especially for sport. He began to write prolifically, calling for the conservation of land in addition to limits on hunting. He also began to publicly praise conservationists such as Theodore Roosevelt, who was also a big-game hunter and had actually hunted with Buffalo Bill, and Gifford Pinchot. Cody wrote articles about how ashamed he was for his part in decimating the buffalo herd. In the 1870s to 1880s, millions of buffalo had been killed, leaving the species near extinction. Cody took action in addition to writing about his concerns. He allowed his own private herd of 18 buffalo to be used as a part of a breeding program that helped to save the species. He also tried to raise funds and support to turn the Grand Canyon into a large game preserve. He took a group of British and American investors there to show them how wonderful it was and how it could successfully help save large game. Obviously, this idea never came to fruition, but a man of Buffalo Bill Cody's stature showing such strong support for conservation went a long way towards shaping attitudes.
0: Dr. Jeff Martin has done research on that Grand Canyon game preserve Buffalo Bill supported.
2: During my master's, uh, my research there was to explore the nativity. Of bison in the Four Corners region on the Colorado Plateau, um, especially in and around the Grand Canyon National Park. Um, not many people know that there are bison on the North Rim. Um, they're not actually owned by the federal government, they're owned by the state of Arizona on adjacent land. But the border between those two is poorly fenced. And so the bison will migrate between the two uh, parks, but they don't care about. The boundary. <laughs> um, most lines are arbitrary to them anyway. Uh, they don't know the difference between left and right. Uh, but so they, they've actually made their the north rim of the Grand Canyon Federal Park their home more recently because of um, the effects of climate change over the last century. Uh, those bison have been there for a century now, um, and multiple generations at this point. Um, and so it is warmed and dried considerably in the lower levels, which is where the state of Arizona property is. But up on the higher elevation, uh, in Grand Canyon, they've been able to find water sources and grazing to sustain their population. So they've stayed there. But when they do that, it made it near impossible to regulate their population. And that's the wildlife management side of things. And so I wanted to come in, um, and, and help the national park understand whether they should be managing these populations as wildlife species that are native to the area or non-native to the area. And so I turned the, to the paleontology and archaeological records um, and the historical records uh, and blended those three uh, disciplines to try and get at the answer of, are bison native to this specific region of the American West? It had been traditionally conventionally known um, or understood that they were not native. And so that makes a, a, a scuffle, <laughs> right? Between what are the managers of the park going to do um, with these animals that are non-trivial, they're quite large. Um, uh, and so my question then was to figure that out. And so I used their uh, baseline saying, during the Pleistocene, bison were native, and here's our measures and evidence for that. And so I use that same measure of evidence of they were here. We had this many uh, sites uh, with bison present uh, within the park and around the park. And I use that same terminology with so to look at the last um, 500 years, the last between 500 and 1,000 years, and multiple time bins going back in time. Until we stitch up again to that Pleistocene Ice Age time that they say they're native. And once we did that, we found that bison are present the entire time, just in low numbers. They were not in the massive populations that you think of for the Great Plains, for example. Uh, This would have been a remote marginal habitat for them. So that changed the perspective. That changes the mandate. They're now a native species. You have to keep them and manage them. Um, And so that's what they're working on now. That has instigated an interagency bison management plan between the state of Arizona and the Grand Canyon National Park.
0: The Grand Canyon has had a thriving bison population for over a century, despite that population bottlenecking event that occurred to all bison in North America. And this is in large part due to people like Buffaloville. They were trying to save a species. Which brings us to the difference between conservation and preservation of wildlife.
3: So this is a really hot topic right now in wildlife sciences. And a lot of it is going back to the original definitions that were prepared for us by John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt. And then also you can include Gifford Pinchot in this. So these men in the early 1900s, late 1800s, were working around each other. John Muir from the Sierras was of the Big Red Sequoia National Forest, those big, huge trees. Uh, Those trees, because they're so large and they take forever to mature to get to that stage, require preservation. Preservation is a no-use setting. Um, You can recreate, you can walk through it, but you're not to harvest it other trees like yellow pine um, and loblolly pine so those are a fast-growing tree. you can use these you can harvest them and they regrow really quickly. Um, so that's conservation that's wise use. Prior to that in North America, our natural resource management didn't exist. We were harvesting, 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 taking 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 um, from fisheries from forests from wildlife, Um, And that's what led to a huge collapse in all of our different fisheries, populations, our big game species, and our forestry, especially these like sequoia um, uh, trees. And so Teddy Roosevelt, before he became president, was seeing this. Um, He was seeing the decimation of the bison herds. He was seeing the decimation of the um, passenger pigeon right in front of him. He's seeing this happen. And so he... And many of his other wealthy friends uh, began the Boone and Crockett Club, um, one of the oldest conservation organizations in the world and indeed in North America. And their goal was to enact uh, regulated harvest for big game. He also then became president and helped perpetuate that uh, conservation idea into the national park system, into the national wildlife refuge system, um, for creating the U.S. Forestry, um, sorry, Forest Service. Gifford Pinchot was the first secretary of that. Um, and so designating these different areas that had very specific characteristics for preservation with the national parks and for wise use conservation with the national forests. And so that's, that's where it comes from in, in North America. To narrow down a little bit more into wildlife specifically, at that time, at the very earliest um, 1900s, um, under Theodore and Tick, President Roosevelt's uh, presidency, bison numbered fewer than 1,000 in the entire world. Most of those were under ownership of private conservationists. They're privately owned. And so when we were trying to repopulate bison populations, the federal government had to actually purchase animals from these private herds and then to put them into public stewardship. And so that created a that was the inception of the North American wildlife um, management protocol. And this is the same time when states who have their own land that they're protecting and, and wildlife to populations to manage were creating their game wardens, their fish wardens, all of those offices. And so all at the same time, we're getting this conservation push and that's when it all happens. Um, for example, uh, Idaho, the state of Idaho created their game warden uh, in office under the purview um, of one state mandate in, in 1901 stating all bison should not be hunted at all. We are going to con- preserve them from here on out. They had zero bison remaining when that was passed um and so the protection was too little too late um so they had to bring bison back to the state to be able to repopulate grand canyon national park we talked about that a little bit ago uh their herd uh, emanated from a private steward as well cj buffalo jones he ended up being the very first park game warden for yellowstone um because he had experience in conserving bison and so He had donated that herd to the state of Arizona. Arizona had had it for almost a hundred years. And then he was assigned to be the first game warden in Yellowstone. So for deer, we know that there's deer everywhere today, right? And you almost, you don't know anybody who hasn't hit a deer with their car. There's so many deer, we're overpopulated in many areas, especially in the upper Midwest. Um, Deer were a rarity back in this time as well. That's how devastating it was. Getting back to where the North American model came from then was really pushed by the National Park Service, which is preserve. Anything within the boundary of that uh, landscape, the arbitrary boundary that we're talking about earlier, will be protected, cannot be harvested, will not be taken for harvest at all. And so then you create, once the populations rebound, you create then a source for populations to then disperse across the rest of the landscape, um, if they're connected well enough and not hunted right away. And so Yellowstone is one of the first, that is the first national park, but also one of the first game preserves and that's what it was originally started as to help protect bison, even though there were no laws in 1872. To protect it, it wasn't until uh, 1898 that the first law was to protect the bison and other wildlife species within the boundaries of Yellowstone. So there is a 20-year lapse, a 25-year lapse um, for protection, uh, and that's when we really did lose the bison. Is over that 20-year span from 1872 to 1898, less than almost, almost only about 300 bison remained.
0: So that law that Idaho passed was one of the earliest laws to protect bison in the United States. It was passed in 1864. That's one year before the end of the Civil War and 14 years before Otto Frank's hunting expedition to the Bighorn Basin. So let's not forget, when Otto Frank first came to the Bighorn Basin to hunt bison, as we heard about last episode, there were no more bison in Idaho. That's just across the Tetons. In 1871, Wyoming passes a law prohibiting the waste of bison meat. So this is targeted specifically at that hide hunting trade. You can't kill a bison and leave the carcass to rot while you take the hide. Unfortunately, although this 1871 law is timely for the bison in Wyoming, it wasn't enforced. According to the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, the year later, 1872, quote, during this year and the next two, an average of 5,000 bison were killed each day, every day of the year, as 10,000 hunters poured onto the plains. One railroad shipped over a million pounds of bison bones, End quote. In 1874, an auction in Texas was moving 200,000 bison hides every couple days. In 1881, Montana shipped 180,000 bison skins from one county. It doesn't take a mathematician to look at these staggering numbers and realize these rates are unsustainable. In 1884, there were only 325 wild bison left, 25 of which were in Yellowstone National Park. On August 20th, 1886, the United States Army takes up residence in Yellowstone National Park in part to protect the bison and their presence helped. By 1889, President William Hornaday estimates that there were 200 bison in Yellowstone National Park, but the army's presence didn't completely protect the bison and they were still the object of poaching. Ed Howell was arrested in 1894 for slaughtering bison in Pelican Valley. His arrest was in some ways the beginning of the laws that allowed protection for bison in the park. The Lacey Act increased the Army's ability to protect park treasures. Eventually, the Army was relieved of their national park duties in 1916 as the first park rangers were created. Now that you can stop worrying about the safety of the Yellowstone National Park bison, what's happening to the other bison in the United States?
3: because of the private stewardship of bison continued to be owned by private um, conservationists, they were ended up considered exempt from having to require obtaining a permit to raise these animals. So for example, if today you want to start a elk ranch, you have to go through permitting process from either the federal or state governments that oversee that to have permission to have those animals on your property to, or for trophy hunting. You must get permits for that, especially if you're gonna fence them in. Bison, you don't have to do that. They are exempt. They're the one species that's exempt under the North American model. And so that has self-assembled itself over the last century uh, into this new system of managing bison across multiple state uh, sectors. It made it a little more easy then For non-governmental organizations such as the Nature Conservancy, the world's largest conservation um, effort today, Uh, they have more assets than any other uh, organization for conservation at this point. They also own bison privately. They can sell and trade these bison on the market or to uh, tribal units or back to public. that has, that has helped perpetuate that system. That doesn't happen in many other systems in North America. Our system is different, we call it the North American model, because it's different from the South African model. Uh, so when you think of their national parks and how they operate them, they have more of a tourism aspect slant to it. And so you have this um, huge economy uh, built around going to see these animals, rhinos, elephants, uh, the big five but there's no hunting, right? It's outside of those parks, then you have issues of poaching. Even inside the parks, you still have issues of poaching. Um, In Norway, the system there is with their reindeer, is that they have these huge populations of reindeer, and the only way to be allowed to harvest any reindeer for your locker, is you must agree to take all of the measurements that a wildlife biologist typically do here in North America and you have to bring those measurements back to the government. And so then the government will use all of that information to help regulate their numbers and what next year's take will be. You want to always keep within a certain relative maximum and minimum population. Um, And so that's a similarity between Norway and North America at least, that we have that take system included. So if you want to go deer hunting here this, this year, uh, you have to wait for the, um, regulations to come up to say, what's the percent take going to be now that's been determined by your state wildlife biologists, and then they issue up the number of permits to get that take. And that's how you regulate the populations. Well, try to, um, bison operates outside of that <laughs> because they're privately owned, they're like a pro- production livestock in some aspects. On the tribal lands, they're used as a way to feed their own people. Um, they don't sell the animals outside of the system to keep it within, to feed the community within NGOs, like the TNC, they will sell the animals breeding stock often because they are seen as a, uh, a, a good seed bank for lack of a better term to get access to unique genetics. Um, And so we have these multiple markets that uh, reinforce each other and the National Park System and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, start with that as well. Uh, They don't sell the animals, but they repatriate um, to tribal
2: lands.
0: Hopefully your head isn't spinning too badly. But now that we've established what the North American model is, and that conservation is wise use while preservation is more along the lines of, don't touch that, this is why we can't have nice things, we're going to end this episode. Next time we'll be learning about the repatriation of bison to tribal lands and more. For more information on the topics in this episode, please visit the show notes. You can find Dr. Martin's work with the Grand Canyon bison herd there, as well as more reading on the North American model, conservation and preservation, and wildlife management. Special thanks to Paris Franklin for reading the quotation at the beginning of the episode. Wherever you're listening, please remember to rate and review the podcast. It helps people find the podcast, and it helps us learn what you guys like and don't like. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.